We're back. Another Dishcast in the new year. Particularly excited this time because we get to talk about ideas and thinkers across time and space. And this is uh, an episode where we're inviting and have invited Roosevelt Montas. Roosevelt is teaches at Columbia and has taught for a long time and was in charge of the core curriculum there for about a decade. And he's written this book called Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. And of course, you know, readers and dishheads will know this is not exactly a, a minor concern of mine um, ever since I've been doing the same thing in trying to understand the world through these thinkers, I've become rather depressed at how marginalized some of these thinkers have been for all sorts of political reasons, and also how contemporary education seems to be moving quite decisively away from what I always understood to be a, a concept of liberal learning, liberal education, meaning dedication to free thought wherever it leads one and to the greatest thought. I was particularly thrilled, although Roosevelt may not be too thrilled for me to mention it, that Matthew Arnold is in this book, just very briefly as an aside. But it's it's good to see someone capable of even acknowledging the concept of the greatest that human beings have ever thought and read, the the highest forms of expression, and, a, and, a, and a, an appreciation of genius, because we're still reading some of these classical texts what people have rather called, I think, misleadingly great books, we're still reading them. And they're still, to me at least, truly radical texts, deeply subversive, hugely fascinating, that can never, almost definitionally, be outmoded or finished. They have lasted longer than any intellectual fad, any academic discourse, any political regime, and we're still talking about them and still thinking about them. And Roosevelt has dedicated his life, really, to bringing them to people who might otherwise not discover them. First generation, low income kids that he's specialized in bringing the classics to. And Roosevelt, of course, welcome. And uh, you were one of those kids. And I, I just want to remember your experiences. You're, you, you are an immigrant like me from, from an island like me but from in a completely different universe. But you came, as you said, I think you said in your book that it was sort of a 19th century village in the Dominican Republic, which sort of had still 18th century values, something like that. Anyway, yeah. it, was, it was a different world that you came from as a kid. You had no education to speak of at the beginning. And you, you're now teaching underprivileged kids some of the greatest minds on earth. Tell me, tell me, what that transition is like, do you, there must have been moments when the distance from where you started to where you are must have given you some kind of vertigo. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here and to have a chance to talk with you about some of these books, some of these ideas, some of the experiences, experiences in my life that have come into, into shaping this book and that really fire, fuel my my drive to advocate for this kind of education. I grew up in a, in a little town called Cambita Garavitos in the province of San Cristobal in the Dominican Republic. My town, when I was growing up, didn't have uh, paved roads. I remember when that happened. We didn't have 
reliable electricity or water. Where at first we didn't have running water. I remember when that happened too. We had one telephone in the whole town at the one gas station that we had in the whole town. I didn't have appliances, didn't have TVs or refrigerators or stove at home. My, pa my parents had grown up in an even kind of further underdeveloped. I, I, sometimes I say that I was raised by, I was raised in the 19th century by people who had grown up in the 18th century. And then I came to New York in 1985, not speaking English. My mother had managed to come to, to New York. She had managed to get a minimum wage job in a garment factory. The whole point of her coming to New York, as, as is the case for many other still Dominican poor immigrants, was to bring her family over. So the moment she got here, she started doing the, the legal process to sponsor my older brother and I. So then we came in May of 1985. My mom lost her job shortly thereafter. We went to the local public school, etc. And indeed, you know, all of that at various points translated into disadvantages, right? Going to school, not having a stable home, not having books in the home, not having parents who even graduated high school. My father didn't even go to high school. Then finding myself at, at Columbia as an undergraduate, surrounded by a lot of affluent kids, kids who had had the most kind of privileged sorts of upbringing and access. In those contexts, all of those things were disadvantages. At some point in my education, all those things began to transform themselves, to kind of transmute themselves into advantages, into giving me a way of framing, contextualizing, understanding the social world in which I lived, the experiences of others, giving me a kind of, a kind of sense of how, how large the world is. That has been a, a, a huge, huge advantage. And indeed, as you say, there's been a lot of kind of existential vertigo. And one of the, one of the practices that, that has helped me put it all together is exactly liberal education. And I see, um, I spent one of the chapters in the book talking about Freud and discussing my experience of psychoanalysis because I understand my own psychoanalysis as very much part of my liberal education. Both of those kind of the formal liberal education which meant being a student in those classrooms and reading those books, but also being a teacher in those classrooms and reading those books as a teacher. All of that is the liberal education, along with six years of, of, of psychoanalysis has, been, has given me the tools with which to integrate my experiences, with which to kind of stitch together a sense of wholeness, a sense of a, a whole person. And that, you know, that took a lot of work. Um, That's a very... Yeah. That's a very psychoanalytic way of putting it, <laughs> connecting the selves that you were. I mean, perhaps the most profound thing that happened is, of course, your mother left before you, and she went to get her footing in New York City before you could get her. So you experienced quite early on as a child, obviously, a sense that your mother had disappeared and gone yeah. and left yeah. you. Yeah, And that's, that's also something that will stay with you for a long yeah. time, even if you then get, as you did, mercifully to reunite with her and build a life together. It was, it was the saddest day of my life, bar none. The day when I was nine and we drove, I don't know, 35, 40 miles to the airport, the longest car trip I had ever taken at that time, to see her off. My, my whole world was kind of snatched from me. And, you know, there, there are certainly ways in which I've never recovered from that. For, for years, going to an airport, even if I was going there to pick somebody up or something, just approaching an airport would, would make me profoundly sad. It, would, it was kind of like PTSD, right? It would just mm. it would trigger the, the kind of most profound sadness. And then when, when, when I got here, 
um, happily she's, she's alive and she's healthy and we have a great relationship and I feel very fortunate in my life well, to have I'm, had her as a mother. But what yeah. I'm interested in is how these 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 books, these these big ideas, were part of your stab self stabilization in a way. They're mm -hmm. where you went to, because you are you know you're plucked really out of you know as you said an incredibly old school kind of world into the middle of New York City. In just in your childhood and adolescence, this is mm -hmm. this is where you're thrown. That's destabilizing. It's disorienting. You can see why you want to cling to things like your home, for example, or you want to cling to, but to then find solace in these books, which, to be honest, are not designed to give people solace, are they? They are designed to understand the world. It's as if, as if you found refuge in trying to understand things. Yeah, yeah. The the life of the mind, the the a place of reflection and introspection, became kind of my escape. Became my mm -hmm. my my safe my safety zone. It became the way in which I was going to face and the place on which I was going to feed to get through the challenges ahead of me. And I, I you know I I thought a lot about how how it was that that I saw that, how it was that I realized, you know, reading, studying, schooling was going to be my ticket out, was going to be my ticket out of a life of marginality and disadvantage and deprivation into some kind of mainstream, into some kind of agency, into some kind of capacity to organize my own world, to, to, see, to be self-determining. When did that start? Well, I mean, I'm thinking of the two years between your mother departing and you finally joining her. Yeah. Is that when you started to kind of bury yourself in some of these thoughts? I think it started earlier than that. And it has to do with, with my father. My father, who I alluded to before, has a sixth grade education, but is to this day just one of the most impressive intellectuals I know from his own reading, from his own thinking, from his own self-education. He early on became radicalized politically. The United States invaded the Dominican Republic in 1965 to prevent the restoration of a popular socialist-leaning president, Juan Bosch, who had been uh, deposed by a CIA-backed coup. There was an, an attempt to, an armed attempt to bring him back to power by left-wing armed movements. And my, that's where my father kind of, that was his political awakening. And that attempt to restore the democratically elected president failed. And the U.S. got its strong man in power who dominated Dominican politics for the next 25 years. And uh, my dad then became kind of part of the underground resistance. Some of his activity was public as a, as a kind of activist for the, for the left-wing party, but most of his activity was underground of a Marxist armed movement. And I, I grew up in, immersed in debates about big ideas, about justice, about political rights. And you overheard, think, you overheard these conversations? Were they oh, yeah. part of your family? Or were you, were, you, were, you listened to your dad talk to his buddies at the coffee shop or whatever? Yeah, where, yeah. where was the locus of this? I've been to the RM. Like, yeah. the, there, were, there were these stories, sort of, there were these places out on the street where yeah. there were these hideous overhead lighting, very bright lighting, lots of music, but lots of dudes all sitting around yeah. fighting with each other on yeah. the street. That's, I saw that a lot. Well, our there. living room was the main site, of, and there was a, a porch in my in front of my house where where every 
evening there was a a kind of a kind of symposium kind of just free flowing political conversation some of the some of the kind of more sensitive secretive things happened indoors but my father and i remember him being criticized for this would include me in those conversations he there, there was no sense that this was a, an adult world that I should be shielded from. My father had grown up under a very authoritar authoritarian father, and his philosophy was to begin treating me as an adult from the moment I, I could understand anything. And, you know, that had its disadvantages for sure, but it also gave me this sense of myself and of that what I thought mattered, that I, was, that I had the standing to have opinions about U.S. foreign policy, you know, as a nine-year-old in the Dominican Republic. And I think it was that orientation towards the world that ultimately became my lifeboat. It was that, as far as I can tell, it was that that opened the insight for me that A, I was not going to stay in this marginalized, excluded, disempowered social position in this country. And that the way to get out of that was going to be through ideas was going to be to somehow yeah. grasp grasp and digest and, and and become acquainted with the ideas that kind of ran the culture and the great books it, fell on my lap yeah right now, i remember very similarly i mean similarly it's always completely different but it's also completely the same listening to my mother listen to the british talk radio and constantly arguing with it and including me inappropriately in any number of her political fights with this person or that person she was a bit she she's she doesn't have an edit function my mother which you know i've inherited <laughs> to a certain degree uh and even though you know my mom had never gone to college i was aware of her extraordinary intellect and that had not had an opportunity she had to go to work when she was 16 to support the family she had never had the ability, but even then, she knew and she believed in a certain area of discourse of ideas that she respected, that were she had not been able to have access to, but she nonetheless could see was where you needed to be. It was a better, and she wanted that for her children, and she particularly wanted that for me, which is definitely part of my own awakening to the thought of of, of, of becoming a person through reading books which is, which is uh, something that I fear fewer and fewer kids are grasping, understanding. But it did not surprise me, having thought about your childhood, that, that Augustine would appeal to you in this way. I mean, just to remind the, the listeners that, that in defending the canon of, canon, not really the canon, but in defending the teaching of great books, Roosevelt actually selects four four thinkers, so which, you know, is an interesting selection that you make. And of the four, and I, I want to talk about all four of them because they're, I, 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 first of all, I love the choice. Idiosyncratic in some ways, but I think really smart in others. It's Augustine, Socrates, Freud, and Gandhi. There you go. That'll, that's a piece of white supremacist privilege, if ever you heard <laughs> one, uh, all these people from all over the world with all sorts of ideas, two from the ancient past, two from really our, our own times. But Augustine, there you have, you're, you're, you're reading The Confessions, which of course is this extraordinary book. Where did that come from, you ask yourself? I do yeah. anyway. I'm like, yeah. how, did, how did Augustine become Augustine? I mean, 
it seems as if we're going way back into the ancient past and we suddenly hear a voice that is completely contemporary. Yeah. That yeah. is, it's almost as if he invented the modern individual. Yeah. That, that yeah. I can't think of anyone <clears throat> before him who examined himself and then was able to write this incredibly intimate conversation with mm -hmm. God, which is mm -hmm. not an easy one. Either, yeah. Which is, yeah. Completely bears his soul and the struggle within. What do you make of that idea that he kind of <clears throat> represents in some ways the, the beginning of the Western idea of an individual human being? Yeah, it's, it's an extraordinary book. And, and so, you know, I couldn't believe it when I, when I first started reading Augustine that, that this figure from so long ago, third, fourth century, writing in a world that is just inconceivably different from my own, and yet facing and thinking about and parsing aspects of the human experience that were absolutely intimately familiar to me. I mean, uh, uh, one of the things that Augustine did for me was give me a way to understand my own interiority, give me a kind of language with which to look inside myself. So Augustine is a teacher of rhetoric. He, he's a very prominent, accomplished teacher of rhetoric. Now, rhetoric in, in kind of Roman Empire, kind of late, late Roman Empire is a hugely important educational kind of it's it's the way that if you are going to become anybody in the society you study rhetoric so rhetoric included philosophy it included the art of persuasion it included legal studies it was the it was the liberal education and augustine is a master at it so he's extremely successful he has a capacity to describe and explore using words that even to this day is, is kind of spellbinding. The range of vocabulary, his, his skill at using words to describe and penetrate phenomenon, phenomena is, is really unparalleled. So we know Augustine's inner life in a way that we don't know any other ancient, ancient figure. And there is a way in which Augustine invents the autobiography. He invents this idea of you and your own development in time, your own growth as an individual, your own internal evolution as an object of investigation. Um, and that's what the Confessions is about. The Confessions is the story of his life towards God, towards his ultimate conversion and the settling of his heart, the, 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 the journey of his heart to finding a place of rest. What is that feeling? I mean, you you speak of it. It's something that 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 drives Augustine. Definitely drives Socrates. Obviously, you can see it as sort of integral to the Gospels. Although with the Gospels, with Jesus, unlike Socrates and Augustine, it's there already. You know, he's just expressing it. Whereas you right. see in Augustine suddenly, well, how would a human being imbibe that? message from Jesus of Nazareth and yeah. deal with it psychologically. And that's yeah. what you suddenly see Christianity in a human soul. But yeah. what saves it from narcissism? Because that, you know, this, the, the contemporary cult of all I have to tell you is all about myself can be incredibly tedious. And it's usually 
actually relating to things outside of themselves, which legitimizes their existence, is not actually. Yeah. So it's, why isn't Augusta not just simply an, a narcissistic oaf that you can just kind of ignore? So, you know, one of the interesting things about Augustine and Gandhi and Socrates is people who dedicate so much of their energy, their time, their, their life force to investigating the self is that in all of them, what you end up with is with a diminution of the ego rather than of a reinforcement of the ego. You know, I, I, I'm reminded of this Zen master who says that to, to study the, the Buddha way is to study the self and to study the self is to see through the emptiness of the self is to see through the is to see the insubstantiality of the self. So, so self-knowledge, rather than leading to a to a kind of solidity of personhood, it has actually an opening. It's actually a, a diffusion of the self that you get. So, Augustine's kind of quest for for self-knowledge becomes ultimately kind of fused with a quest to know God. Those ultimately become kind of one and the same object. And when I, when I talk about finding rest, you know, people may disagree with this, but the only thing that really satisfies your, your mind, your heart, your being is truth. There is nothing that can bring closure, bring, bring a sense of, of, of rest and, and appeasement, except that. And it is, it is certainly the case that, that truth is a very tricky notion, that it keeps, it keeps shifting from under you, that it's not something that you finally attain but something that you always is transcending itself. Truth is this thing that always is self-transcending all the time. So it's not like there's a place that you get to and you got it, but it's more of a a, a, a progression. But there's a, let's yeah. let me jump in there for a second. Not, yeah. Excuse me, cause I, I'm, but I'm interested in that, right? Because you know you can see that for Socrates, for example, just to, to pick another yeah. one of your subjects, you're right, it's an endless, endless questioning. But there's no, he's not satisfied. I mean, the whole definition yeah. of Socrates is the is dissatisfaction with the current yeah. state of mind. It's not yeah. it's not resting, actually. Yeah. But for Augustine, it is. The God comes in and reveals himself. Like this, yeah. you can read countless Socrates dialogues and you end up, I mean, I remember my sitting in my general exam and we're into this in talking about the Republic. And and at one point one of my interrogators said to me, Well, what what is what is Plato's understanding of justice in the Republic? I said, I don't think there is one. I don't, I don't know. He goes, it's mirror upon mirror. You just keep thinking yeah. about justice yeah. and it keeps disappearing in front of you, just as you're about to to grasp it. Whereas yeah. Augustine's sense of rest, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Suddenly, this is not, it's, it's, it's a mix, isn't it? Because, but, because Plato's forms, Socrates' ideas are timeless, but we'll never reach them. Yeah. And for Augustine, no, we will never reach them. But sometimes they will reach us. Yeah. Right? That's, that's yeah. Augustine's, yeah. that's the distinction yeah. there. Now, I... You you were again. This is interesting. You were a fundamentalist evangelical Christian at one at one in your youth. Mm -hmm. This was an extraordinarily, and you describe your feelings of being such a thing as, as, a, as a terribly sweet, wonderful experience that you 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 did rest 
in a way, yeah. didn't you? Yeah. So I'm yeah. just I'm just curious about this conflict with truth and yeah. resting. Yeah. Really, you only rest when you're dead, right? <laughs> unless you are unless you are saved in in some fundamental way. But Augustine tells us that even when you're saved, even when God introduces Himself with a capital H, yeah. It's yeah. still a struggle from then on. You then lose in interacting. Yeah. You, you still then have a lifetime of doubt and agony. Yeah. And you see that in Augustine. You know, he so in what sense can Augustine say, I I my heart has found a place of rest? And how do you put that together with a endless life of investigation, of mm -hmm. asking questions, of writing? of in some ways kind of epistemological agony. Augustine is, you know, I have a three-year-old son, almost four now, and his curiosity is just beyond bounds. And Augustine sounds like him a lot sometimes. Augustine, you know, Augustine's book, City of God, which is like a 1,200-page tome, deals with every question you can imagine, you know, including he wonders, you know, why do men have nipples? So he has a whole section on why men it's have a very nipples. good question, which he was <laughs> very right to ask all those years ago. So uh, he was he was grappling with Darwin before before yes. before the moment, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, yeah. suddenly he didn't realize, uh, but but he saw something problematic there, something difficult to understand, yeah. right? There's a there's an intellectual restlessness in Augustine that never goes away. So, in what sense can you? compare that or can you put that together with this sense in which he finds rest and and you know that's a that's a big question but one of the places i think about in in answering that question is when augustine is in the throes of the agony of 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 coming to christianity or ac accepting christianity he he resists it and he reaches a point where he has absolute intellectual conviction that christianity is true but he can't, his heart is not there. He can't give himself over to believe, to accepting. And he has this breakdown under a fig tree. He's shedding tears. He's, he's having a meltdown. And then he hears a little child playing a song that says, pick it up and read, pick it up and read. And he goes and grabs a book that's laying on, a, on his table, which is the New Testament. He opens it up to some page. And there's a verse there from the Apostle Paul. And when he reads that verse, everything clears. When he reads that verse, he is suddenly, there's a release. This is what he calls grace, right? And it's, I think it's an experience that, that, that we have. It's an experience that we are capable, that, that, that there is something you, you said that it can reach you. Something that kind of transcends and exceeds your own machination, your own efforting. So the way I put those together, the sense of certainty or the sense of rest that Augustine experiences or knows it's possible is this experience of grace, this experience of being drenched in something that is that you could not manufacture. That is greater is than you. That is greater than you and is compatible with the intellectual restlessness that Augustine, that always characterizes Augustine. I'm going to read a little passage because I like this passage here about Augustine thinking about how kids learn how to speak, how, how they uh -huh. grapple with language, which was, you know, again, pretty much ahead of his time. <laughs> He's sort of, yeah. you notice the sort of Chomskyite sort of intimations here. It was not, quote, this is not that grown ups instructed him, but that he himself acquired the power of speech 
quote, with the intelligence which you, God, gave me. Now, it's, 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 this is the Christian understanding that, that, in fact, our brains, our, our minds, our reason is actually integral to God's creation. It's actually how we find him, that we should trust this nature in us that is constantly asking questions. This is not something that is, I mean, some people understand that the, the, the question-seeking is, is incompatible with religious faith. What Augustine seems to suggest, and which Christianity insists upon, is that no, 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 no. It's a mix. It's a mix. It can't, God did not give us this to be idle with it. Yeah. On the other hand, we know that this can't reach the truth finally unless something beyond us intervenes. So we're in that netherworld of asking questions. Here's, here's the piece that I find so arresting in Socrates. It's also what I find so arresting in the Gospels. It's the equanimity, the utter equanimity that Socrates and Jesus have upon confronting their own execution. Mm -hmm. that, that in some ways, and this, you also see this in Buddhist thought, that it is indifference towards death that, um, that is the final resting. You're still alive, but you, you're so in touch with the greater reality that your own extinction is almost irrelevant. And that's why I've always felt that, you know, Christians in the Gospels, it's, it's less the agony that, I remember, remember watching the, the Passion of the Christ, the Mel Gibson mm -hmm. snuff flick, essentially. And uh, this is disgusting pornography of, Gory. <laughs> of, of pain, just horrible. Like you've missed the point entirely. It is not that. It is right. Jesus' unbelievable composure, yeah, and forgiveness and serenity. Yeah. That is yeah. clearly the point. That yeah. is a triumph over death. Yeah, it's extraordinary. That's the great. Yeah, go on. That's that's Sorry. extraordinary. We have the capacity to do this. That there is some aspect because that that is you know, kind of evolutionarily wrongheaded to have mm -hmm. the capacity to, to somehow overcome the fear of biological extinction, to somehow come to value something, to settle your consciousness somewhere that makes your biological existence inessential. That's, that's, that's just extraordinary. This is also obviously connected, and you yourself have engaged in this too, with the, the goal of the meditative end state, which is, which is utter at peace with one's own mortality. That, right. uh, it was Montaigne who, who wrote to philosophize to learn how to die. He is echoes it, that from who, who, he Socrates. Was, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, Socrates says that's the point of philosophy. The point of philosophy is to prepare you to face your own death. He says that on the day that he's going to be executed. He's trying to comfort his friends who are breaking down and freaking out. He seems out. utterly... Socrates, in the, in the way it's presented anyway by, by Plato, yeah. is almost bemused by the, the angst and anguish of those who loved him. Yeah, there's a there's an extraordinary sort of matter of factness and simplicity of this. Well, yeah, it, it, yeah, I understand. This is this is the part of my 
project of 70 years of teaching and corrupting the youth. <laughs> this is the, 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 the public wants my head for it. Well, I guess they have a point. Let's, 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 because I'm interested in this, because in some ways, the postmodern argument, essentially, and this is, this is sort of what is at stake in some ways, some manner of speaking in the academy today, in our, in our broad culture, mm-hmm. is that really truth is a complete phantasm. That it's it's a it's a it's a sweet pill to take the medicine of being oppressed. It is there is no truth. There is only power. Let's, mm-hmm. let's put it as bleakly mm-hmm. as possible. And hovering over these pages is Nietzsche, who is like almost the foil to each of these yeah. four thinkers, the nemesis in a way yeah. of classical education, although. Being a good liberal or a good classicist, we want to include Nietzsche within the canon <laughs> because Absolutely. precisely because he tries to subvert all of that. That's right. He's earned his plays for he's sure. Earned his fucking plays. Um, <laughs> and not only that, but as you point out, he's a, you know he and Freud are just great writers. Yeah. And this is the other thing. You you know if you ever tried reading reading read a passage of Freud, then read a passage of Judith Butler, okay? <laughs> 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 Even Marx, for Christ's sake, the, the yeah. 18th Brumaire is a sort of force <laughs> of, of hackery. And <laughs> so it's the Communist Manifesto in many ways. Uh, but Freud, obviously, and this is interesting, let's talk a little bit about Freud, because people uh-huh. people get irritated when you bring up Freud. And, and I'm a big but fan can, of Freud. But he Before we go to Freud... Yeah, yeah, let, let's pause a little bit on this on this question of truth, right? You, I agree with you that the postmodern posture is one that kind of empties out the concept of truth and says, you know, truth is a particular way to advance a power agenda, and truth in 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 claiming for itself supreme authority and unchallengeability is nothing but kind of highly effective deployment of power. Part of the problem with that posture is that it doesn't, it cannot escape the truth claim. What that posture says is that what is in fact, what in fact is true is that truth is only a function of power. You cannot, the human mind cannot step outside the notion of truth. Language, communication does not make sense unless it presupposes a anchor point of truth. Yet, that paradigm is so dominant in the university that it makes, you know, when you were introducing our conversation, you talked about, you talk about genius, you talk about the best that has been thought of, you talked about these ideas that are enduring. All of those possibilities, all of those categories get undermined by the postmodern position. So you can't have great books, you can't have virtue, you can't have genius, you can't have what's best. All of that is, are simply demonstrations, deployments of power. It's one of the reasons why liberal education is flailing in the academy today. It's one of the reasons why there is so little room in the academy for the project of liberal education and why where it does exist, it is profoundly countercultural. It cuts against the grain of the contemporary university. So Freud. But what I yeah, no, I'm yeah. complete obviously I'm I'm with your it's a it's, it's a choir here. You're preaching to but nonetheless <laughs> the the point I would make about that is this: it's a it's it's a pseudo sophisticated dismissal of truth. It's it's a kind of 
college know-it-all hippies idea of what is actually insightful. Yeah. It's, it's, oh no, if you're worldly and you've known the world, you've seen history, you realize all oh, this is just... It's all a facade because these these forces that are controlling you and the world, it's all just a mask for this. It has a, it has a slightly conspiratorial feel to it in some ways, but it tells you, for fuck's sake, don't read anything before we discovered that everything is power. I mean, these people are just deluded, right? They're just, they're just artifacts of their own particular power structures, and that's why we do everything we can to previous thinkers to contextualize them, to dismiss them because the past is just worse. My, my, my view of this, Nietzsche is a particularly genius in, in, in making this a seductive argument because he appeals, mm -hmm. I think, to the vanity, our, our vanity. But in fact, the great breakthrough for human consciousness and life, in my view, and I think in, intuiting from your book, not far from where you are, is precisely that moment in human civilization and human history when we say maybe power isn't everything. That this 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 postmodern thought is actually very pre-modern. It's right. it's the notion that might is always right. That that these are the only virtues we can really aspire to. And the Buddha, Jesus, Socrates, these figures come along, and their core message is actually. The truth is paradoxically the opposite. That yeah. it's the more you renounce power and seek truth, that you will be happier. That in fact, our deeper nature, our deeper nature as humans, that which connects us to the divine, is about the letting go of power and the pursuit of this thing, this, this elusive thing called truth. This is, this is the great, why would we step back from that moment of liberation in human consciousness and attempt to restore yeah. these horrible doctrines that only power matters. You know, this is this is one of the reasons I love Gandhi and what I, why I put Gandhi here. Gandhi calls this mentality of kind of might is right, he calls it the law of the jungle, where power and force are ascendant. And he says the whole meaning of human civilization is our evolution beyond that. And in fact, he says, the use of force is actually the anomaly. It's actually the exception. The whole, whole all of civilization, all of culture, all of society is built upon precisely our having evolved, transcended, gone beyond the law of force. And he has this other notion that he calls soul force, which is he thinks it's an aspect of truth. He's, he, he thinks is is the most powerful force in the universe is truth. And you can deploy, you can align yourself with this. He thinks of it, of it in terms of a kind of cosmic force. You can align yourself with that order, this deep order of the universe, which has a kind of, de has a developmental thrust, has a developmental thrust away from the law of the jungle. Anyway, that that's just, an aside on Gandhi and why Gandhi is important It'll, in this. But with Gandhi, also, yes, and I'm I, I'm glad we got to Gandhi because in some ways he's the the, the brilliance of your picking Gandhi is that is here you have a person who's deeply committed to the concept of truth as a kind of way of life, and truth is is God, and God is truth. At least he 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 uses that formulation 
several times. And really, you know, to this Christian, I hear in the beginning was the word. Mm-hmm. And the word was with Logos, God, and the word right? was God. Yeah. Logos. In the beginning was truth. Mm-hmm. And truth is with God, and truth was God. Mm-hmm. And when you think of it that way, the, the core, the John, the gospel, the John, the gospel, the gospel of John puts that as its first sentence. In the beginning, there was there was the word. And that is as if humans actually somehow deep, even though we emerged as we now understand from a long period of evolution, that what made us humans, this thing, this intellect, this mind, is godness in some way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, is, it is to be trusted, even though it's often counterintuitive to do that. I, mm-hmm. I don't understand why this isn't actually the exciting and liberating idea. It is not exciting and liberating to believe you are a mere cog in an ongoing, endless process of violent oppression or being oppressed that will never end, to which the only response is some kind of embattled struggle uh, that is obsessed with identity. Mm -hmm. Why, how one can see that as a form of liberation as opposed to a form of imprisonment is beyond me. But mm-hmm. because I'm not, how do we lose, how do we lose the radicalism of the Socrates, Jesus, you know, Gandhi, Augustine position, which I'm not, by the way, if you look at other contemporary movements, you look, I'm particularly fascinated myself with the psychedelic movement. Mm-hmm. These are, there are other movements in neuroscience too that suggest, mm-hmm. yeah, actually this does make people happier. It's, 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 mm-hmm. it's the pursuit of truth and simplicity too, obviously. It's, yeah. Gandhi, the other thing I want to bring with Gandhi, of course, is that he's an absolutely virulent hostile host to the industrial revolution, to mm-hmm. the, the scientific revolution, yeah, in a, in a classic old school religious kind of way, which is, yeah. you can be as rich as fuck, but you are miserable as fuck. And, yeah. and this is not, this is a false God that you are in terrible indictment of, of the West, yes. but not an indictment of the West as a concept, indictment of the West as it developed its concern and obsession with purely material goods yes. and benefits. Yes, it's the ascendance, the dominance of materialism. It's the idea that the highest goal in life is the fulfillment of your biological needs, your the fulfillment of your desires, health, security, possessions, pleasures, that this is the highest goal of life. And our whole, as Gandhi sees it, our whole modernity is organized around the, that idea. A whole um, economy, our whole educational system, our whole um, post-industrial ethos. And not is, just in the sense of, of we can create the minimum standards for it, because most people would accept that providing a, a basic standard of living for people is is not a, a terrible problem. It's it's obviously a positive right. thing. But it's the question right. of no that there's a certain level of enoughness that right. Gandhi would insist upon that Jesus would insist. In fact, Gandhi right. and Jesus of course go that much further, which is right. that which is in fact possessions are in themselves a prison. Yes. Yes. Gandhi you know, Gandhi's life is organized around three great vows. One is celibacy, and one is non-possession, and one is non-violence. And he took these to the absolute 
maximum human extent. One of the things I love about studying Gandhi is that he is a kind of a limit case about what is possible in the pursuit of, of ideas, radical ideas. So he only, he not only gives up sex, he wants to get rid of the desire for sex. He wants to uproot this absolutely primal and basic and rooted impulse, evolutionary imperative to reproduce. He not only divests himself of, you know, takes about poverty, he wants to give up all possession. He wants to have to own nothing. He wants to erase it down to zero. He not only wants to abstain from hurting others, he wants to abstain himself from the use of coercion and force and killing in every, he doesn't want to hurt the, he doesn't want to hurt a fly. So, you know, he obviously can never attain absolute fulfillment of those, but he gets pretty damn close. And according to him, you know, the, 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 the power that he is able to unleash, the fact that he is able to stop the colonialist enterprise, or, the, or rather it's the fact that he can marshal the social forces that make the colonial enterprise untenable. He says it's, it's about that. It's simply about this concentration of soul force that, that he's, he's committed. He says that he, his whole point in life is to attain moksha, to see God face to face in this world and in the next world, in this life, to see God face to face. You know, we're talking, we're talking there about a dimension of being, of existence, a way of, a way of inhabiting your own humanity and this own world that it's, it's kind of on another plane than... I'm trying to think of yeah. any human being. I mean, there have been many unknown ascetics who have lived lives of extraordinary self-denial. But the only other person with of Gandhi's genius and impact, I think, who did this, apart from Jesus, of course, who was who changed human consciousness through through resisting power and through giving up possessions and by being homeless, essentially. Is Francis actually is Saint Francis? Mm -hmm. Saint Francis, yeah. Uh, and Francis is a is there's a kind of probably form of insanity. Mm -hmm. And and let's talk about sex for a second because you don't really bring it up in the book, but it's hard not to when you look at the at the figures you you talked about. Here's Augustine, absolutely horrified by his boner, absolutely terrified of it. And and another mama's boy, by the way, who yeah, panics for sure. about his boner. For sure. Gandhi obsessed, can't gotta stop this yeah. obvious obviously natural phenomenon. It's not right. this is it's unnatural. I mean, so unnatural. Yes. And in fact, of course, Gandhi had, if, I mean, we don't know what he, I mean, who knows how he actually mastered the art of never coming, but obviously he <laughs> didn't, he failed. Uh, maybe right. he did it without volition, but then it becomes but it would be a crisis whenever it happened, you know, oh my well, God. Well, yeah, and Freud <laughs> would tell him, you think you're dreaming this, this thing? It's not a dream at all. This is all you want. I just, uh, and what's impressive about Gandhi is that he, he experienced all of it first. It's not like he started out as right. an ascetic. Similar with Francis in a way, he was wealthy, mm -hmm. powerful, a scion of a rich family, and then just became this crazy homeless person. But we still talk about Francis, we still talk about Gandhi, mm -hmm. our entire yeah. culture is based on, and these people were without power. Well, that's, that's a paradox, right? Right. And that, that right. would suggest that Gandhi is right. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is, I'd love your thoughts about this, because it's, for, let, let me say 
this thing with Socrates. So Socrates accepts death, right? Socrates, his friend comes to whisk him away from prison a few days before the execution. Socrates says, no, I'm going to, I'm going to accept, even though it's an unjust imposition of punishment, I am going to not resist. So Gandhi and Martin Luther King have recognized that Socrates is engaged in this, in this form of nonviolent, non-cooperation, nonviolent resistance. And in doing that, he unleashes an intellectual force that has transformed Western culture, right? Plato can never get over that. Plato's whole life and the contribution, which is immeasurable that he that he's made to to human thought the motive force the power the little dynamo that's that's driving plato is this experience he's had with socrates he's seeing this much like jesus's followers who see this individual undergo an unjust death and that generates enough cultural philosophical ethical human power to change the civilization this question of sex and I'm, I'm I'm curious what what you think about it because it's it's a little bit puzzling to me. But Plato is very anti antibody. You know, Plato is is the the kind of the appetites of the body for food for sex are a huge impediment to what his vision of the philosophic life. And you have to somehow overcome, transcend, master them in some way, reach rechannel them. Of course, Augustine. Is, is celibate, Gandhi is celibate, Freud, I think, has a much more nuanced notion of the necessity of suppressing or containing, repressing certain destructive aspects of that and, and, and sublimating them, right? A allowing for some socially constructive, aesthetically nourishing manifestation of those energies. But, 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 but the, the thing that puzzles me or the thing that that I, that I find remarkable is how so many figures from so many different traditions in so many different times have come to see this relationship between the sexual the, the, the sexual appetite or it's not it's not just sexual I think it's 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 tactile it's it's bodily it's it's erotic right it's the erotic sensual sensual right yeah the body the relationship between that and this other form of power and force that in some way is in 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 conflict in in a, in an econ in a zero sum economy with this with this impulse just it's it's quite quite fascinating it's fascinating and it's deeply countercultural i mean and yeah. again i would like to say because i don't share this and because i'm i think probably in this sense more of an aristotelian than i am yeah. uh, a platonist and because i sort of i do think that humans are animals at some level and that nature of us is 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 it is it is a kind of mania to believe we can get rid of that and what you but what you see in augustine i think also in socrates to some extent is a sense that that impulse those profound biological essentially evolutionary impulses enslave us that we are not that in those moments when we are we are starving, we have that first bite of food, or we're thirsty and we have that drink of water, or yeah. we're horny and we finally have the orgasm. That in those moments of human need, we are utterly slaves to our passions, yeah. and and yeah. therefore we lose 
the capacity to reason. We may regain it, and we often do, mm -hmm. two seconds after the orgasm, but we certainly don't have it two seconds before. And that's 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 the uh, that's the key thing. Now the question is, yeah. can you get rid of that? Can you really get rid of the desire for food, the desire for comfort, the desire for? I mean, Francis, Francis, for example, would would never use a pillow. He would have to sleep on the ground. And when he was dying, clearly from some kind of pneumonia, one of the fellow monks came in and just put a pillow under his this poor man's head. And he, the following morning, screamed at this guy, yelled at him for tempting him and dragging him away from God. Now, that's a pathology in a way, right? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. It yeah. is pathological. Most of us can't do it, but Gandhi did it. Yeah. Priests used to do it, and yeah. and is there something? Is there here's is interesting. Thing. Is yeah. there something about the moment at which the sexual revolution happens in the West, and its and its abandonment of its desire, it's sort of deep at the beginning of its abandonment of the centrality of truth in its? Uh -huh. Is it that we have basically agreed, and the sexual revolution kind of made this a sort of defining modern moment that in fact. If 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 truth means not having sex, then fine. Forget we'll, it. We'll, right. we'll, we'll, right. we'll deal with we'll deal right. with postmodernism as long as we right. can get off. That's a fascinating idea. You know the relationship between the let's call it postmodern disintegration of truth and the concomitant, the, the simultaneous sexual revolution, the simultaneous. There are no there are no rules anymore. Essentially, if it's if it's if if it's legal, it's fine. Maybe not even that one. No, not even. I mean, um, you, you go to yeah. Foucault, you go to Foucault as the kind of ultimate uh, representative yeah. of the postmodern sexual libertinism, and it was okay right. to have sex with children. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a that's a fascinating that connection. And get your and get your scrotum nailed to the bar in the in some sex club in the nineteen seventies, which yeah. is, he was he yeah. was. Yeah, and there's something there, yeah. isn't there, that yeah. we're, we're the, nervous yeah. about? And Nietzsche thinks sees this quite clearly. That the third essay in Nietzsche's genealogy of morals, which is on, it's on the ascetic priest. It's on, it, he, it's a meditation on this ascetic impulse because we are just as much as we have the pleasure impulse, the erotic, the sensual impulse. There is also this asceticism this this impulse towards asceticism that we have and 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 i think what nietzsche what nietzsche ends up is in the recognition that certain forms of self-binding that certain forms of of constraint of of abstinence in fact are a higher form of the exercise of power for him that are a higher manifestation of the will to power. When you were talking about before the ways that's, in which- that's, that's just to clarify, that yeah. that's Nietzsche's understanding of the the impulse for celibacy and asceticism is actually a disguised, yes. well, surprise, surprise, Nietzsche thinks it's, right. a, it's, a, disguised it's a disguised power, <laughs> right. power move. Right, but it's he a pretty high, it. It's a pretty rough power move. It, you know, it's, it's, it, it denies the human a great deal that makes a human life what it's, what it's obviously biologically supposed Right, do, right. To be, I want to, I want to. But it, it's a, it's a yeah. given, isn't it? It's a given currently in our universities that we cannot discuss sex 
really as a moral question or not just no. that, but it's also a civilizational question. Right, right. Now, you know, I, I'm obviously, I'm, a, I'm an openly gay person. I've, I've had lots of sex. I have, it's not, but I do recognize that this is a challenge. Now, the, for me, mm -hmm. what's interesting and what you bring out in, in Gandhi, for example, which is also true in Catholic theology, which is that, well, the Catholic theology has utterly reconciled itself with Aristotelian nature and and the the, the importance of breeding. I mean, we're, we're right. not we're not post post fucking in Catholics. Au contraire, <laughs> we are post fucking for pleasure. However, even however impossible that becomes. But what here's here's the truth that captures me a little bit is that 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 becoming celibate, declaring that freedom from sexual desire is a form of liberation because mm -hmm. this is of all the things that 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 play that just completely hijack our brains and i think this this is truer of men than of women but it, it's it's true yeah. of all humans that impulse just i mean it just seems to to crash through Absolutely. every rational dominate and every it, yeah yeah I, but I, in the past, of course, that was so true that if we let it unleash, the societies would have completely collapsed, yeah. that, that they would not have been able to keep their shit together. However, yeah. at the moment, we reach such levels of plenty and comfort and yeah. material well-being that that is not a problem. That is not The society is not really going to dysfunction. Although you could argue, and, and, and I, I, again, this data is pretty potent on this, that in fact, you know, the children of the sexual revolution have not done so great. And they, they didn't really benefit from the fact that parents split up and, and, yeah. and, and they are kind of lost sexually. And at this point, don't have a structure with which to put sex in to make it meaningful, yeah. except as some sort of yeah. pure hedonism or recreation as like playing sports or a video game in, in ways that it impoverishes us, mm -hmm. presumably. But the, the alternative would require giving up sex and people are just not, uh-uh, not going to happen. Yeah. Even though, yeah. in fact, of course, the younger generation we appears to be giving up sex because it's lost. <laughs> it's lost. It's lost it's it's yeah. In the last hour, we've talked about ideas and arguments and individuals that I think are objectively fascinating. I, 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 I defy any yeah. human being not to find these questions pertinent. But today's established higher academy is attempting essentially to stamp this shit out. Mm -hmm. And it, it, because it represents exactly a model of truth seeking, which is effectively at this point regarded as fallacious by most of mm -hmm. uh, the higher educational establishment, which is an extraordinary, in some ways, yeah. an extraordinary event yeah. in yeah. Western civilization. You know, the post truth and world started. Yeah. It starts in the academy, the post-truth world. I mean, it's in the pop in popular culture now, and we, you know, are pulling our hairs out because people won't accept the results of a legitimate election, or, you know, not accept climate change, or any other number of of you know fantasy narratives that people prefer. Well, that that devaluation of truth remarkably starts in the academy. Yeah, it if, does. What the is replacement the point of, of the academy truth with lived not experience. Yeah, yeah, it's in fact, it's the replacement of truth with identity, as if identity can even tell you who you are, as if that <laughs> these words make any sense. Like, yeah, in what way are you, I mean, just reading your book, I mean, 
how on earth could the life of Roosevelt Montas be summed up by an ethnicity and a, and a, and a gender? I mean, it's yeah, it, yeah. It, it's it's the most pathetic yeah. attempt to describe a human being. So my sense would be, however, that and therefore university becomes not a pursuit of truth, but the recitation of certain orthodoxies that have to be enforced repeatedly, not just in how you what you study, but how you study it, how you interact with other people. And my joke is sort of that Harvard's gone back to its roots as a divinity school, which is just like <laughs> teaching people important orthodoxies and how to speak correctly and how to fit properly into today's higher upper class as opposed to truth. But kids are actual human beings. You, you, you've been teaching young kids, often from poor backgrounds, overwhelmingly... Uh, non-white in whatever, however that, the non-European, right. whatever the fuck that means. I don't know what it means anymore. They, do they still respond to this? Do they, do they look at this list and say, I'm not doing that. That's oppressive. That's all these, I mean, they probably w wouldn't understand, but they would say, well, they're all white men, right? I'm mean, leaving Gandhi out of it to some extent and leaving the fact that Augustine's from North Africa and Socrates is from ancient Greece. I mean, this stuff is Let's just completely call them white. bonkers. Let's just call them white. And Freud is like, for fuck's sake, Freud, <laughs> white. Like, yeah, Freud is indistinguishable from the average Episcopalian. I mean, the whole thing is so insane. But but once, it, once I suspect and believe, actually, your average human being living life in a real life, and that's sort of partly why... I think the value of having a life as difficult and as vivid as yours, a real place you came from. And a lot of today's upper classes, it's just really never came from a real place. They're all stuck in this elite bubble that, in which they don't have to face some existential questions, and then they can play at this. But please tell me that kids still respond to these texts and how they, and how people who are not quote-unquote, white, straight, whatever, can also respond to these texts. What's your experience of that? You know, the humanities <clears throat> in academia are, are collapsing. People are, are fleeing them. And they're fleeing them, it's not because they want to be software engineers or financial economics majors instead. Uh, that's not why. They're, they're fleeing them because what they're getting in them is uh, a lot of fluff, a lot of junk, a lot of insubstantial, vacuous, confused, meaningless junk. The questions that the humanities, that literature, that philosophy, that ethics, that history, the questions that makes those disciplines alive, the questions that make them matter, the questions that make them uh, compelling have been so often shunted aside. And that is why ultimately the humanities are collapsing. And, and you know, it's, 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 because they have abandoned the ground of our humanity. If you put those questions back at the center, people will come. And that's why places like, you know, the Columbia Core Curriculum, not to get too provincial, but it's the place where I encounter these books and students today, every Columbia undergraduate has to read these books and discuss them. And many of them hate them while they're doing them, but almost overwhelmingly, all of them love having done it. And it's like a religion among Columbia alumni, this, this intellectual experience. And the reason why that program persists is because of the alumni, anytime it comes under threat, they're ready to walk away from the institution and never give them a penny if they touch the core curriculum. Why is that? Because it speaks to them and not just 
when they're doing it for the rest of their lives. You know, when I came to Colombia, it was the first time where I was begun to be treated as an ethnic subject. The first time where I was identified first as as a marginalized, of color, oppressed individual. And I, 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 it took me a long time to just like make sense of that. Like, no, wait a minute. That that's not that's not who I am. That's not the experience of myself. And to the extent that those things describe me, they don't define me. And today's the people that I encounter today in the classroom, both low income people of color, but also very affluent and very privileged kids are hungering for contact with these kinds of questions and these kinds of thinking. It's not true that young people come to college today just to get a career. It's not true that they're coming to college just as a, as a kind of instrumental transaction. In fact, they are obsessed with existential questions. They are obsessed with, is there really no other point to this life I'm living than to make a lot of money? to be the biggest boss and to be the biggest family. Is that really all there is? These questions matter to them with a kind of urgency. And it's sad, it's lamentable, it's tragic that when they come to the university, they don't find there a place where you can take these questions even seriously, where those questions have simply be, been put out of the curriculum and, 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 and out of the discussion. And I have very little patience for that. You know, it may be because my, you know, I, I, I didn't have time for, for games or something, I was I, I I had a kind of seriousness about you know what is it that matters and what am I here for? That even though I, you know, postmodernism deconstruction theory was fascinating to me. I I, I was a very serious student of that and and uh, in college and was enamored of it and then kind of got to the bottom of it and and thought wait no. No. <laughs> it deconstructed itself. Exactly. It deconstructed itself. So, you know, to answer your and question. And it is sir, not, it is not, it is not spiritually or psychologically or intellectually satisfying. And it's like, no. you can take these different courses, but essentially it's the same course, which is yeah. ideas don't matter. Right. And the, and the more you learn that, you're more like, well, why is thinking mattering at all? Why am I just doing? Which is why it all becomes essentially a form of activism, because what else is there if there is power. no truth? Right. It's just power. And also within that sort of pursuit of power, there are no ethics, essentially, no. because ethics themselves are a function of power. Yeah. And the whole thing is so depressing I, and, and also enervating, intellectually enervating. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. But what you suggest, I think, is also true and gives me a certain amount of hope. We may be going through a wave of, of, of uh, I will call it this, but you won't, because the book, I must say, is... To, to tell readers is extraordinarily measured. There is no way in which you, you said on this, this podcast things a lot more plainly than you do in the book. You're very, very polite about your colleagues, about the situation, the world in which you live. But and the, the, the tack you take, which is why I find it really positive, is that it is just reminding us of the greatness of the liberal tradition and, of, and mm -hmm. the uniqueness of liberal learning. It is... It's, have you, I mean, this is a this is a side, but have you ever read Oakeshott's essays, "The Voice of Liberal Learning"? Yes. They, they 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 are. There's so much in the spirit of this, the sheer delight in ideas and to and fro, and the understanding that the 
a resolution is not what you're aiming for. What you're aiming for, he has this lovely metaphor of a tennis match where there's a difference between a Wimbledon final and a friendly match. And when you're having a conversation with a friend, it's a friendly match. You don't have to win every point. You don't want to have an argument in which you are triumphant. It's too boring. But what you want is every now and again, it's a little over the line, whatever. Let's, let's whack yeah. it back over the net. Let's keep the rally going because we care about each other. And yeah. because the process itself, and this is the other thing that you don't really get to, but, but Socrates is very emphatic on that there is something in the learning experience that is erotic. That, yes. That, 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 that there is, that the way Socrates plays with his interlocutors, and just yeah. letting them discover for themselves that they actually don't know what they're talking about yeah. or that they've, or as you know, they used to say on the McLaughlin group, once again, you've stumbled upon the truth. Morton. <laughs> there are an occasional <laughs> when idiots will say things that are beyond true. The other, uh, I just, I'm, we'll wind up here, but I, I, I just, the two, two of the things that I love from my own, I, I, I went to history at, at undergraduate and in uh -huh. England, in the, in the undergraduate, it's extraordinarily, it's much more geared towards academic achievement. In other words, we weren't given any basic core co courses in. Yeah. I mean, I did have to read some basic historian. I did do a political thought module, but really that wasn't, it was going to Harvard where I was lucky to start over uh -huh. two years of just this. Yeah. I would, Harvey Mansfield is my professor for, for a while. And I used to teach nice. for him. I used to taught for Michael Sandel. I taught for Judith Sklar, who was also, I was lucky enough to study with some really wonderful people. Uh -huh. And, uh, Every week on a Friday at 4 p.m., I would go to Harvey Mansfield's office, just the two of us, and we would read The Republic, wow. Plato's Republic. And we did that for two years. And we didn't finish it. And all I can tell you is that I don't think I could give you a kind of you know utilitarian assessment of that experience because I certainly didn't gain some sort uh -huh. of set of knowledge from it if you, uh -huh. if you were to griddle me on the Republic today, I'd be terribly rusty. However, uh -huh. however, I, th I think of it as one of the most wonderful experiences of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that's the uh, thing about ideas, right? That, that, that they have their own worth in themselves. They are not, their value is not from the instrumentality. Obviously there are some ideas that are just instrumental, but there is such no. a thing as the life of the mind. There yeah. is a thing. And we, even the meaning of that, sometimes I use that phrase intrinsic value and people can't parse it. People can't understand it. You, you, you they assent and then you begin to talk and then it's, yeah, but what is it good for? Okay, the value is intrinsic, but what, what can you do with it? It's almost <laughs> like you cannot, you cannot stay there, cannot <laughs> sit there with the fact that there is something whose value is inherent in the experience itself. And, you know, do you so think that do you think that widespread the collapse of religious belief has affected this? Because to some extent, religions were a rudimentary training in the thought of a transcendent truth. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think so, but I'm not sure. You know, because I doctrinal systematic religion has has definitely taken a hit. But I'm not sure that religious conviction, religious attitudes have. I mean, people especially in the United States, are extremely religious. And, you know, in the halls of Columbia, Yale, and Harvard, uh, there is a lot less religion than there is in, you know, on Broadway or on 142nd Street. So 
you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that the religious fervor belief status of, of you know, and I'm not talking about institutions. I'm not talking about orthodoxies. I'm just talking about there's the also a difficulty because you sort of people come to education thinking I want this amount of worth from it, or I want to mm -hmm. gain this much. I want this much gain in my future salary, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Whereas to persuade people that actually, that's exactly what you don't want an education for. <laughs> that 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 in fact this is a moment. We give people a moment yeah. in their early years yeah. to take time out. Yeah, and not to, to do something not for the sake of something else. Yeah, and that's I can't. You know, you're you're right. It's so. It, it's also in some ways you can't teach that. I think what you can do is, and I think this is, and I want to leave with this that in the book too there were se there were several human beings teachers from the beginning of your life through to the end mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. sought you out, who 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 noticed you and engaged mm -hmm. you. And those people you remember because they strike you as having a sort of integrity. They, they didn't need to do that. It wasn't to their advantage yeah. to help you. They recognized a kind of kindred spirit and, mm -hmm. and there's a bond there, right? There's a bond, mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. if it's a mm -hmm. really a tenuous bond, but you recognize each other. Yeah. And yeah. you recognize yeah. we want to figure this out together. There is a, yeah. There's a, and there's there's something about overhearing it almost, or just observing it. There's a way of learning something that's almost like overhearing it. Yeah. And you begin yeah. to adapt, yeah. adapt to it. It's not. Yeah. A, it's a different kind of learning. I I call it. You know, uh, I use the disease metaphor. Say that it happens by contagion. It's something you mm -hmm. kind of rubs off on you that you catch uh, mm -hmm. a certain, an attitude, a, an orientation, a way of. A kind of lateral way of seeing. Um, it's not this kind of humanistic education. This kind of liberal education mm -hmm. it doesn't happen by by transmission, by instruction, by kind of filling an empty vessel. And that's why, by the way, it can't happen in like massive online courses. You can watch all the lectures that you want on YouTube and Khan Academy or wherever. That's not going to give you a liberal education. That gave you a lot of content. That gave you a lot of information. But education is this, this dynamic, alive, interactive, on the spot, human activity. Um, that's, that's why when what... people mock, when people mock sophomores staying up till two in the morning, smoking weed and talking about God, they shouldn't mock. That's part of liberal education no, too. That's absolutely, it part is of precisely liberal those freewheeling conversations with your yes. friends. Like, what yes. do you really think? Right, and the one of the worst the, things about yeah, when on, the classroom sorry. works, that's what's happening in the classroom is you're not there, you suddenly are not there with an agenda. We, it's not, we're not here to get through these 12 books of the Iliad today. We are here and somehow the humanity, the reality, the immediacy of the, of the, of the moment takes, takes over. And you are in a flow. You are in a conversation, in a real communion over things that matter to all of us by virtue of our humanity, by virtue of our being here as human beings right that's liberal education happening there yeah when i when you and you the, the wonderful thing about plato is of course when you when you first arrive at this thing you're like well, is this a play like what's he trying to say who's he where is plato oh 
oh, it's Socrates, and who are these other people that he's talking to right now? How are they different? And 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 you observe, you just observe like a play. Yeah. yeah. These people getting trapped in not trapped, but enticed into understanding what might be true in their own mind, accessing their own previous views. You can see that in Socrates. I also yeah. think it's, it's one of the fascinating things about Jesus in the Gospels is that he's often asking people questions rather than telling them things. Well, here, here is Peter asking God, you know, who are you? And he's like, well, who do you think I am? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. It's, a little, it's a little kind of, it, it, Jesus ducks, bobs, and weaves a lot of the time. Yeah. And yeah. that's the form of invitation. Exactly. He's trying to, to, to jar you and destabilize your own sense of certainty. Maybe, maybe you'll see something. He uh, wants you to realize something you already know, but have not fully articulated yes, or come yes. to grips with. You know, the kingdom of God is within you. Yeah. And that's I love, why... You know, yeah, yeah. On, sorry. No, in, in, I, I, I think in the book I mentioned, I elaborate a little bit on one of my favorite quotes, quotes from Jesus. You shall know, the, shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. You know, I love that because it's it's not the truth that will make you free, but knowing the truth that will make you free. And then it's not that the truth will liberate you, but it will make you free, right? There is an inner transformation vis-a-vis -vis the truth. The truth will catapult, will, will, will unleash, cascade a process inside you, an inner transformation, an unfolding that's liberating. Not something that can be given to you, imposed to you, told to you, but something that can be sparked in you. Yeah, and that, but that is a almost religious sentiment. There is yeah. something in humans that has a spark of the divine, and, and that spark of the divine, whatever we call it, is related to our reason. And yeah. that the exercise of our reason in this compassionate, humble, open, skeptical, inquiring, non- non sort of aggressive way, non controlling way is the way to find it in yourself. And yeah. then in the society as a whole, uh, Roosevelt, it's been fantastic. I, I hope you, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. I, I, I really, uh, have. <laughs> this is well, these are writers that... <laughs> sorry, go on. No, this is what, this is, this is the best kind of, of, of liberal situation. I mean, this is, this is what a liberal education is about. It's, it's, it's talking with someone about serious ideas in a kind of non-utilitarian, in a committed, in a whole way, with your whole, with my whole self. So yeah. anyway, just to say, this is really what I live for. It's conversations like this. Me too. Um, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to have them. I'm delighted you came here. And also, I'm delighted to have so many dishheads who are listening to this and have been engaging in this too. And please, uh, to all of you who have listened, write us. You have responses to to these podcasts. Chris Chris goes through the email entry in a way that's incredibly diligent and insightful. And we would love to talk about this with you, the listeners, and have that debate on the podcast page or even in the dissent section on the regular page in Substack. If you are listening to this and you get this, but you haven't subscribed yet, please do. It really makes a difference. We are, we are building this and we, we realize that, and I realize anyway, that this is, we, we have a precious platform to talk about these questions and to revive this tradition and to engage in the practice of liberal democracy, which is about this at its core. And there's less and less of this 
And the only real response to that is to provide more and more of it. So thank you so much, Rosel, for coming. And I will see you all next week for another round, round the bases discussion of reality. Um, thank you, Andrew. Lots it's of love. It's a real and, pleasure yeah, to be here. <laughs> you too, Russell. See you next week. Bye.